Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Could I invite you please to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 35. And while you're turning to the place, let me just say a very sincere thank you to you, Raymond, and to Tom, who was the the link to invite me to come to the convention. It's been a great privilege to be back, to meet so many of you and to meet so many missionaries and hear uh, of what God is doing and the struggles of those who are serving God in different parts of the world. So it's been a great privilege for us. Thank you to all of you who have stayed awake during, at least for most of the Bible readings. That's maybe been a challenge for you. And I want to say also a, a very warm thank you to our lovely hosts, Billy and Sheila Steele, who have lavished us with kindness over this last week. Uh, you'll be glad to know that there are no theological problems left in the world because Billy and I solved most of them, probably quite late at night in some cases. Uh, so we greatly enjoyed it. I want to say thank you to Billy and Sheila. Perhaps before we come to the reading, too, just a very brief word in the work in Drogheda. I haven't talked about it this week, but let me just take a minute. Uh, it was about eight and a half years ago, I suppose, we went to a relatively small group of, I think, fairly discouraged folk. But by God's grace, we began to be encouraged by people coming in, uh, the vast majority from the local community simply coming through the door and then bringing their friends. And then we discovered as Ireland became multinational that people from up to 15, sometimes 20 nations and certainly over 20 language groups came to the church. So it became a lovely mixture. We elected elders. The first was a Nigerian, the second Lithuanian. We had an English Baptist, Irish brethren. Then the rest were, I think, Roman Catholic, but not a Presbyterian in sight, but no matter. That, that's the kind of church that it is. And when our Sunday school goes out, it's really like the United Nations leaving uh, for the Sunday school. And so it's been a great privilege to reach out uh, into a community where people seem to be really hungry for God's word. Uh, we moved, and we will be officially opening a new church on Saturday week. Bang opposite a large estate, we, we were concerned about leaving the center of town. But it's been an amazing thing that in the last six weeks, at least 30 new families have turned up from that estate and from the nearby houses. So they may not all stay, time will tell, but it's, it's been a very encouraging time, and we're grateful to you for your support in that work as we, we reach out with the gospel. Before we read, just let me remind you, our theme has been the kingdom of God. Uh, we thought on our first day of the promise of the kingdom, uh, the promise of a redeemer in whom all things will be restored in heaven and on earth. And how when Christ came to inaugurate that kingdom, he had to first bind and disarm the strong man and to spoil his goods and open the door for uh, the announcement of the good news to the nations. We thought on Wednesday of the priorities of the kingdom, the, the call both to care for people's bodily needs and to proclaim the gospel and prepare people for the life which is to come. And yesterday we thought of the encouragements and the discouragements of the work of mission. We need a a dose of realism at times, and we also need a dose of encouragement. And today I want us to, I'm not good in titles, but I think I'll call it the perplexities of the kingdom. Because though we're all working in the kingdom in some capacity or other, we're also individual Christian human beings with our own struggles. And so we all face pastoral issues. And I think some of those might come up in the passages we're going to read this morning. So let's read from uh, Mark Four and verse 35. We're going to look at three main incidents, but we'll not take time to read 
uh, the whole text. Mark 4, verse 35, this is God's word. That day when Jesus, or when, when evening came, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, he said, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, chapter 5 is the story of the demon-possessed man. You will, I hope, remember that story well. So let's, uh, just because of time, break into the very end of the story at verse 18. Jesus has just uh, exercised the demons. They've run into the herd of pigs, and the man is now sitting clothed and in his right mind. But we read in verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there seeing Jesus. He fell at his feet pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. But a large crowd followed, pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, I'll just touch his clothes and I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, when Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, and the the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue, God ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them and went in where the child was. And he looked, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished. 
He gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's take a moment to pray as we come to God's word. Father, we simply ask uh, as we come again to your word that your Holy Spirit would come to teach us and we dare to ask that you would bless us so that your great name will be exalted and your saving health made known among all the nations. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. The first Christians, when they were baptized, were usually asked to make a very simple confession. Uh, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? They were asked, and then in their own language, pistueo, they would say, I believe. I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that was a very short confession, but by no means a simple confession, because it was loaded with meaning. It was, of course, first of all, the conviction that Jesus was none other than God the Son. The word Lord, of course, is the Old Testament word used for God. Jesus Christ is God, is what they were confessing. And secondly, it was a refusal to say that Caesar is Lord. They were required to do that for political reasons, but to confess Jesus as Lord led many to their deaths. It was also their missionary motivation, for at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so it was his right of allegiance to, of the people of all the nations that drove them to preach the gospel. But also it was a confession of deep personal trust. Because Jesus is not only Lord of the universe and the nations, but I'm confessing that he is Lord of my life and of my circumstances. He's in control of the events of my life. Now, we need to remember that the Gospel of Mark was written to very discouraged believers who not only faced severe persecution, but they had all the same struggles in life that you and I have. Unemployment, illness, bereavement, unanswered prayers, it seemed doubts and struggles in their faith, financial problems, and so on. So, they had all these things to struggle with. And they ask the same questions as we do. How do you trust God when a child dies? When a wayward son goes from bad to worse, even when you're praying for him? When a husband walks out for another woman and so on? You can add in the stories in in the, the circumstances of your life. So it's one thing to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in a theological sense. There's a sense in which that doesn't cost us very much, at least in this country. But it's another thing to say that Jesus Christ is Lord when the circumstances of our lives seem to contradict that fact. And so, we're looking at four incidents here, really, in in which the Lordship of Jesus seems to be severely tested. So let's remind ourselves of these four incidents. One is a storm so severe that even professional sailors are terrified and fear they're going to drown. That's the story in chapter 4, verse 38. Then there's a man so full of evil forces that not even chains can hold him. Then there's a woman with a hemorrhage that uh, for over 12 years was getting worse rather than better with the care of doctors. And then there's a little child who's not only very ill, but Jesus turns up too late, it seems, and she's now already dead. Four extreme circumstances. But in each case, Jesus demonstrates that he is Lord over those circumstances. The storm is still to a whisper at his command. He says, be still. The evil forces retreat at his word, and they enter the pigs, which rush into the lake. 
the hemorrhage ceases immediately and the woman, after the woman touches him. And the little girl who is dead rises at his command, little girl, get up. Be clean, be still, be forgiven, get up. Jesus speaks the word of authority and in each case, the destructive forces obey and retreat. But notice that in each single case, he's demonstrating that he's exercising divine power because these are things that only God can do. That's what his hearers and those who were there would have understood. Take the storm, for example. They would have known Psalm 65, verse 7. You, O Lord, still the roaring of the waves. This is God at work in stilling the storm. I take the sickness, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. Only God can do that. Or take the possession, Psalm 107, some sat in darkness and chains, but the Lord saved them and broke their chains. Only God can do that. And only God can defeat death. Psalm 16, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor my body to see corruption, but you have made known to me the path of life. These were things that only God can do. So in his actions, Jesus was demonstrating the fact that he is not only Lord of the circumstances, but that he is none other than God the Son. But notice again that in each story, there's a twist in the tale, a little bit that we mightn't have expected. And Mark seems to specialize in telling these little stories, and there's always that something about it that we wouldn't have expected. Here's a storm raging. Disciples in a panic. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. What an unexpected thing. And then he says, don't, you know, where's your faith? They're saying, don't you care that we drown? Rather strange reaction from Jesus, does it not uh, seem? And then there, there's this deranged man now sitting clothed in his right mind, and he offers himself, if you like, for missionary service. He wants to go with the disciples. And what does Jesus say? No, you go home. Back to your own people, back to your own community, and you tell them what God has done for you. What a disappointment to this man who was volunteering, if you like, for missionary service. And then on the way to Jairus' daughter, surely he should have rushed to get there in time, but no, he delays and he deals with this other woman and he arrives too late despite the urgent pleas of her father. And here's a man now going through bereavement who perhaps shouldn't have needed to experience it, the death of his little daughter. So every single one of these uh, incident seems to have a twist in the tale, but it seems to me that the lesson of the story comes in that twist in the tale. Let's just quickly take the, the three main incidents again. Here's Jesus asleep in the storm. His disciples are terrified. Now, surely we're being reminded here of real life experience that Christians are not exempt from the storms of life. It doesn't matter who we are, whether you're a missionary or not, or a full-time worker, it doesn't matter. The wealth, health, prosperity doctrine is false. It's simply not true. If you're sick, it's nothing to do with your lack of faith. Good health may not necessarily mean that God is blessing you, and bad health may not necessarily mean that he's punishing you. That doctrine is false. In fact, not only do Christians face trouble, but they face two sets of trouble. They face more than anybody else. They face the troubles that are common to people in this life illness and bereavement and death and tragedy and disappointment and failed exams and so many other things that other people face. Christians face those too. And they face 
persecution for the sake of the gospel. Jesus warned that they have this added pressure in their lives. Sometimes we only have pressures because we're Christians. So we have the, the two sets. And surely this incident in the storm in a very vivid way reflects our real life experience. How often do you find yourself going through tough times? And inwardly you're crying out, Lord, if you loved us, you wouldn't let this happen. Have you not prayed like that or felt like that when something is happening to someone you love? Lord, why are you letting this happen? Surely you can't love us. Or maybe you're punishing me for something. It's not how we feel. And then we also feel, don't we? Lord, we're crying out to you and you're asleep. You're doing nothing. We pray and pray and pray and nothing's happening. I have to confess that I've often prayed and still pray just like that about things I'm praying about where there's no answer and the Lord seems to be asleep. Is that not how we feel? And it seems that the point of this story is that we are asked to trust Jesus in the storm. It's in the middle of the storm that we're called to trust him. He says, where's your faith? Faith, it seems in biblical terms, is to trust Jesus even when we're in the storm and even when we have no idea what God is doing in our lives and things don't seem to make sense. Joseph had to exercise that faith. We only see from hindsight what God was doing. Job had to exercise that faith. And it seems so do we. But it also, however difficult it may be, and let's be truthful, it's extremely difficult at times, is it not? We have even more reason to trust Jesus than the disciples did. Some people have equated this to the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. You remember that story where Jonah's in the ship and the sailors, he's sleeping down below, and the sailors are crying out, We're perishing. And you remember how Jonah said, look, sacrifice me, dump me over the side, and you will be saved. And in Matthew's gospel, our Lord is referred to as a greater than Jonah. Here is one who, when we were perishing without hope, was thrown overboard, if you like, into that ultimate storm of storms, the storm of eternal justice and judgment, so that we would not have to be. And in the midst of that storm, or as he approached that storm, he cried, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And at the very height of that storm, he too felt the same things as we feel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's the one, if you like, who refused to abandon us to that storm, who's asking us to trust him in the lesser storms of life. He says, trust me, I'm with you, I won't let you go. It seems to me that's the kind of trust to which we are called in our lives, and it's a tremendous challenge in the storms of life. But come to the second incident of the deranged man who now is clothed and in his right mind. Perhaps there are two twists, at least maybe three in this, but we'll take time only in two of them. Again, we're reminded here, surely, that the gospel, when it enters a community, both unites and divides. Would you not have thought that there would be delight in this community when this deranged demoniac from whom you know, people fled, they were terrified, they had to chain him up, now sitting clothed in his right mind, and what do the people come to Jesus and say, please leave our community, please go away? I can think of churches who had really very little enthusiasm for the gospel, but as the institution was going down the tubes, as they saw the empty pews, they they actually were prepared to call a minister who would preach the gospel. 
And when that minister came, people began to come to the church, and they began to fill up the seats, and things began to change, and the people who had called him in the first said, we don't like it anymore. It's not like it used to be. We really don't want this kind of ministry. The gospel both divides and unites. We can't avoid that fact. But I think that the main twist in this is that God's ways are different and higher than our ways. Here's the demoniac who wants to join the disciples. He wants to become one of the group going off on mission trips. How disappointing when Jesus says, no, I'm calling you to go back home, back to your own community, back to your own people and family, and there you will bear witness to me. Maybe that's what God is saying to perhaps even most of us here. Some he will call to leave uh, your comfort zone here in Ireland and go overseas. But many other will be privileged to be sent back to your home place, to your own community, your own church, and perhaps not always the most exciting place there to bear witness to what God has done. So often our disappointments are God's appointments. Like John Wesley, when he came to a, a a heart living faith in Jesus, began to preach the new birth. He was put out of his pulpit. But in God's grace, the world became his parish, and he preached the gospel right across these islands. And uh, as we said the other day, Britain was saved from the revolution that tore France apart. Young Amy Carmichael was deeply disappointed. She had set her heart on going to Japan, but illness prevented that, and she eventually ended up in India and spent a wonderful life of service there. We're, I'm sure, all familiar with the wonderful story of Jim Elliot and his colleagues who went to reach the Ok Indians. I remember I was a student at the time that these events happened and the years of preparation, the flying over the, the Ecuadorian forest to find out about the culture of these Aka Indians. And then finally these four or five young men landed uh, on a strip near the Curare River and radio contact cut off. And the next time a plane went over, their bodies were found lying flat, face down in the river. They'd been hacked to death before they'd been able to share the gospel with a single Aka Indian. We happen to know how that story developed because the wives of those young men then decided they would go and reach the same Indians, and they eventually flew in. And such was the impact of the wives of those who had been murdered coming with the gospel that virtually the whole tribe was converted and representatives came to the Lausanne Congress. God's ways are very strange at times. We have friends in Germany who work with Contact Mission. We were with them a couple of years ago when two lovely young girls who had trained as nurses and had just gone to the Yemen to serve Christ as missionary nurses. They had only just arrived less than a week when they were arrested or taken out of their home with a doctor and shot dead and left lying in the ground. Sometimes we don't see what God is doing. Sometimes in a set of life we don't really understand what it was all about. I sometimes think of the story of Moses. I still remember us doing the story in the beach and valley home with the children. We followed the journey of Moses right through with a big board and a big map, and we got him all the way to the end. But what a disappointing end to his life. He never made it into the promised land. There he's lying, dying in Mount Nebo, and the devil saying in his ear, it was all a failure. It was all a waste of time. You failed. God has let you down. 
But we've got to move on to that other mountain of transfiguration, and there we see Moses standing with Christ. Only then do we see something of what it was all about. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. The words of Mary McShane. And so this story of the deranged man, I think, reminds us that God's ways are not our ways, and we're called to trust him, even when his ways don't make sense to us. But let's come finally to the story of the dead girl, a story where Jesus delayed. It seems to us unnecessarily. And of course, did he not do exactly the same with Lazarus? Do you remember how Mary said, Lord, if you'd only hurried up, my brother would have been okay. But surely again, it's a deliberate action, is it not, to teach us something. Jairus' daughter died and had to wait for the coming of Jesus to be raised again from the dead. It's not exactly how it is with us. We've got to wait to the coming of Jesus. Mary had to wait to the coming of Jesus before Lazarus was raised. The Thessalonian Christians were worried about their bereaved loved ones. And so Paul reminds them that it's at the coming of Christ that the dead will be raised in Christ and we will be together with the Lord. And so we must remember that the, pa- the miracles in the Gospels are not a pattern for what we should expect in this life. There, Mark uses a special word. He calls them signs. They're foretastes or a demo, a demonstration of what we can expect in the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And some people get confused, I think, about Psalm 103, where it says he heals, he forgives all our sins, and heals all our diseases. And so they say we we can claim full healing now. And if you're not healed now, it's because of your lack of faith. But we do not receive that full healing now. It's not yet that that comes. That full healing of body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies are awaiting the glorious liberty of the children of God in that day when they're liberated from bondage to decay. And so each miracle is a sign of the kingdom. For example, the story of the storm is a sign of that day when nature will be subdued and the lion will sit down with the lamb and the whole of nature will be restored. And the demons being cast out are a sign of that day when Satan will finally be destroyed and evil finally cast out of God's world and the earth filled with the glory of the Lord. And these incidents of death and healing or being raised from the dead and healing remind us of that day when there will be no more disease and no more death and no more tears. Perhaps we may ask the question, should we therefore pray for healing? Well, yes, of course we should because we are commanded to do so and we can know substantial healing in this life. And many of us here can testify to that through prayer that there has been substantial healing. But that full healing of body, soul, and spirit must await the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember here that poor old Jairus' daughter and indeed Lazarus, they had to die again. The poor things had to die twice, if you like. They too must await the return of the Lord for that full healing and that full redemption. And so as we try to bring things together, we've only got the five mornings, so we can't follow through the kingdom completely. But I think we're reminded that we are caught between two ages. And you may remember in the first morning, I completely forgot about this. I said we had, the Old Testament believers had probably seven, I pointed out seven dilemmas that they may have had about the coming of the Redeemer. And I said there's going to be an eighth one, which we'll keep for later. And I forgot about it, but let me just mention it now, because it seems to me that John the Baptist was a bit confused about the Lord. Initially, he was quite convinced he was the Lamb of God. And you remember how he sends the message then? He's now languishing in prison. 
Are you the one who is to come, or should we seek another? Because it seems to me that perhaps John and the Old Testament believers, because he was the last of the prophets, they were expecting when the Redeemer came that all those things that were promised were going to take place. Why then should John be languish in, in, in prison? I think it's rather like when you go climbing in the mountains, you, you climb for hours to reach the summit. And at last you get there utterly exhausted, only to discover that there's another summit ahead and there's a big valley in between and you have a long way yet to go to the summit. And it seems to me that's what the Old Testament believers metaphorically at least saw before them. Yes, the Redeemer had come, but there were two mountains. There was a first coming when many of those prophecies were fulfilled, but the others must await the second coming, what we call the last days in between that time of mission. So if you like, there's what we call the already, those things that are fulfilled already, and the things that are fulfilled not yet. Already our redemption is accomplished in the cross. Already Satan has been disarmed and bound. Already the Spirit has been given so that we can take the, the good news to the nations and captives released through the work of mission. But not yet has Satan been finally destroyed. And not yet has nature been completely restored. And not yet do we know that full healing of body, soul, and spirit. And not yet are all things united in heaven and on earth. Those things must await the return of Christ when he will reign forever and forever. Let me close with a, perhaps a story of a young man who had to come to terms in his family with this very truth. David was a foul-mouthed young man in our community. Uh, Dirty-minded, angry, sullen, difficult, disobedient. He was in our youth group, but not an easy boy or a particularly, in some ways, attractive boy to handle because of his attitude. But the feeling was, the thought was that he had, uh, at that time, cerebral palsy, and he was being treated for that. But in fact, that was the wrong diagnosis. It turned out that in fact, he had muscular dystrophy, and his treatment was all wrong. It was, it was the exact opposite of what he needed. But as his body began to weaken and fade, he ended up in a wheelchair and became less and less mobile and able. He used to run around playing football when he was younger. And then one day his mum came to us and said, I would like the elders to come and pray and anoint David with oil and pray for his healing. I've got to confess, my faith uh, was stretched to the limit. This is a genetic condition, and I wasn't exactly sure what we were praying for, but we, we said in obedience to Scripture and in this request, we prayed with David and his mom and family and anointed him with oil. And I think it was 24 hours or 48 hours later that his mom phoned us up, and she said, something wonderful has happened. David is converted, she said. And the truth was he had been converted and was completely transformed. And all who knew him, and I visited him for the next, I suppose, two and a half years, almost every week, they would have said the smile never left his face. He was so completely changed that he couldn't stop talking about Christ and about the day when he would throw away this old yoke, which he called his wheelchair, and the day that he would run Uh, with new legs and a new body. And as his body got weaker, he had constantly praise songs playing uh, in the little CD player behind him. We had a little thing stuck in the window so the birds would come and he could see those and so on. But as he got more and more weak, he was only able to type with one finger on his computer. And he 
typed a letter explaining the gospel to his whole family circle. None of the, the gospel was not something well known in his family circle, but everyone got a letter typed by David with one finger, and not only to his family, but to the whole muscular dystrophy community right down as far as Cork. He shared his testimony and shared the gospel. And then he typed me out a letter that was to be read at his funeral. It was based upon the words of to live as Christ and to die as gain. And it began, when you hear these words, I will be in heaven with a new body. And he requested that this hymn would be sung. There's a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb. No more pain, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, no more sickness, no injustice, no more death. And we can go there, we can live there because of your love, because of your blood. We'll see you face to face and we will dance together in the city of our God because of you. Because of you. It was perhaps the most joyful and triumphant funeral I've ever attended. And David knew, and we need to be reminded, that there are some things that are not yet, and we must await by faith. And so when the storms are raging in our lives and the skies are dark, Jesus is Lord. And when our prayers are not answered as we had hoped, Jesus is Lord. And whether we are called to serve him overseas or sent back home to our own place, Jesus is Lord. And when loved ones die, and we face bereavement, Jesus is Lord. And we are called to trust him, as the hymn puts it, till he returns or calls us home. May God enable us to do so. Let's take a moment to pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org donate.